And welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Saunders, and we have a really interesting interview coming up for you in just a few seconds. One of the great things about the fundraising world is that in addition to the large companies um, and, and organizations who are out there trying to do research, publishing white papers, refining and optimizing uh, the fundraising experience for donors, there's a whole culture of passionate fundraisers who have their own grassroots projects that are trying to do the exact thing. I think that's where a lot of the energy and innovation comes from in the sector. And we're very fortunate to be uh, talking to someone who's on the front lines of one of those projects right now. He is Luis Diaz. He is executive director of annual giving at Muhlenberg College, and he's also the host of the Donor Participation Project. And we're going to find all about the Donor Participation Project right now as we bring Luis into the show. Lewis, welcome to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast today. Hi, Dan. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and all your listeners. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. And we're excited to learn more about the work that you're doing with the Donor Participation Project. But first, we want to find out a little more about you. There's so many interesting origin stories in the fundraising world, a lot of eclectic and diverse backgrounds. So if you wouldn't mind, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this industry and how you worked your way up to where you are today? Thanks, Dan, of course. And you must have uh, so many um, interesting stories in your, in your collection of, of, of podcast interviewees. But mine, you know, I think it's almost typical in how strange it is, right? Um, I thought I was going to be a violist. I was a professional musician. I was studying toward that at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Um, I'd come from Spain on a graduate teaching assistantship with my wife, who's also a musician, and I'd studied some business too. Um, as we got closer to graduation, you start to think about reality, life, earning a living. And I kind of just did a direct response campaign. I didn't know that I was doing that, but that's what I did to find internships in New York City. I had a place to stay and I looked for lists. I built my own lists. Um, at that time, and I wrote a very nice letter uh, offering myself to do an internship over the summer. And I ended up landing two amazing internships. One was with a boutique con consulting firm called AEA Consulting, um, really high level intellectually and um, just all around amazing. Um, they work mostly in feasibility studies in the cultural sector. So um, and that was a great learning experience. Then I went to Lincoln Center and it was in the production of the Mostly Mozart Festival. Um, and there at the time, Renal Levy was their CEO, kind of a legendary fundraiser. And that was the bug that kind of bit me. And it got me thinking, oh, you know, this is a career and it involves most of my interest. I'm technically oriented. I'm people oriented sometimes. Um, I have this scientific background in economics and there's a whole area called behavioral finance and behavioral science that is a little bit about it sounds like fundraising a whole lot so when I went back to school I started networking got a job in the alumni office as an administrative coordinator and you know how that is one thing led to another um, that's and that you know that was the beginning of it all and that's such a common story. And you're right, we have had a lot of interesting stories on this show. And it, I didn't necessarily set out for it to be a regular question, but 
as I started talking to people on the show and you hear all these different stories and all the different ways that people get into this industry, I think we've had one, maybe two guests that got into it by design. So it is interesting to hear the different career paths that people take. And um, you're not the first person that we've spoken with who has a background in the arts. Um, so I'm just curious, is there anything from your background um, with music that you have found to be helpful in your career as a fundraiser? <laughs> That's a really good question. So I'm kind of the prototypical violist, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm orchestrating things. Um, I'm not in a leadership role a lot of the time, but I'm making things happen. Um, a lot of what I've found in fundraising, maybe it's just the area that I'm good at, but, you know, a, a lot of the success I've had is in setting up the structure for fundraising to, or, you know, for philanthropy to happen really, right? So it's not so much about always the person that's asking. You, there's a whole lot that goes into setting the ask at the right time, at the right moment, in the right atmosphere with the person that is in the right mindset. Um, and all of that, you know, when you, if you have all of that, the ask is almost, you know, a, a very natural consequence. So, and that's like a violist. So, uh, you know, for those who are musicians, I hope that resonates. I, I could also see the um, the constant need to perfect your craft and, and and the discipline because you're not born a great musician. It's something you need to work at, and you never you never reach that level of perfection. And and I see parallels there with fundraising. That even if you have a gangbuster campaign, there's always things that you can test and try to do approve the, from the margin. So I imagine that that mindset of always wanting to get better and work towards perfecting your craft has served you very well as well. And it, and it shows with the donor participation project and your involvement there. Um, I became familiar uh, with your work and the donor participation project through LinkedIn. Um, would you mind giving us a little bit of a primer, telling us what the donor participation project is about, what your goals are, and what were you hoping to accomplish um, by starting it? Absolutely. Thank you, Dan. And I have to say LinkedIn has been the only social network where I've been able to have these substantial conversations with leaders. So in the, you know, leaders in the industry. So I could from you know, just being basically a nobody, just reach out to folks like you and um, have conversations based on essentially the quality of the thinking. You know, so I, I found that to be a great equalizer. Uh, I, I'm a big fan. But we started the donor participation project um, in August of 2020, and it came out of a feeling that I had that a lot of the advice and the knowledge in the sector was oriented toward campaign fundraising. So, and that maybe is, is a consequence of just my background. I've been uh, mostly in higher ed fundraising, which is you know very much major guest fundraising, except for a few schools who, who have a strong participation focus. Um, but you know there wasn't a lot out there. And I thought, look, there's this trend that has been happening over the last decade. So this year, half the number of households gave to philanthropy in comparison to 10 years ago, okay? So it's, it, there's something going on and this is going through recessions, it's going through economic booms, it's not that this tax law changed. Um, you know, like everybody, when you talk about this, they very, maybe naturally focus on what immediately happened. Well, we're coming out of the recession. Well, you know, yes, but this is a trend that's happening, has, is, is um, happening over time. 
and um, doesn't look like it's stopping. So we need to fix it. Um, in a nutshell, I reached out to a speaker and we had a fantastic first speaker, a researcher from the Harvard Divinity School, Angie Thurston. She was investigating why millennials congregate around some organizations and not others. Um, as you might know, religious participation is seeing a similar trend. It's declining. Volunteerism is also declining. Um, so uh, we, and then I gathered some like-minded individuals, mostly through LinkedIn, that I knew through LinkedIn, and we started getting together and talking about it. And it all kind of grew very naturally. So we started meeting monthly. Then the monthly meetings started to be too big. So we said, well, let's meet in smaller groups the week following our big meeting. You now we call that a lunch analysis. We meet at noon, it's one hour. Um, so we're having small group discussions now. There was an interest in marketing automation. We set up a study group on that. So it, it's all been very kind of member-driven. So you're kind of a, a member-driven, your member-driven laboratory that's looking for ways to improve and optimize fundraising. And, and um, that word optimize is something that has become a huge buzzword in the industry over uh, the last decade, really. And I think a lot of fundraisers have now bought into the idea that you kind of have to be pushing forward and testing different elements, whether you're doing direct mail or digital to constantly try to improve what you're doing. Um, but one of the interesting things that came from our conversation offline was that you said that your findings from donor participation project are that the optimization practices that we're doing are not enough to um, sustainably grow giving, that you're finding that new donors are seeking community engagement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that resonated with me right away. And it, it's not something that um, we really hear talked a lot about in fundraising because there's so there is so much focus on the um, the a b test mechanics of trying to improve your fundraising and not as much in the community aspect. Of course. And that topic really is lots of different topics inside of it. One, you know, I think the big idea is that if you have a model that's declining, if you optimize more of that model, if anything, you're going to accelerate the decline. You know, I think that's pretty logical, right? So if we have a declining donor base and what we keep doing is focusing more and more on identifying that top 20%, that top 10%, um, we're, we're gonna keep, you know, we're gonna accelerate, you know, we're gonna decline that much quicker. So, and a lot of, of, of when we talk about optimization is really that, right? Is how to eke, you know, 1%, 2% more from the existing base, whereas, the real problem or the way I see the real problem is that we need to enlarge the base, you know? Um, so, and, and, you know, optimization is okay, but I think we've reached the point where, you know, just a 1% or 2% increase is not gonna cut it. You know, you just need to kind of be looking at um, paradigm, paradigm changes, you know, that will, um, that, that will help you think differently about the whole thing. Right, and it's the same thing with a website, right? If you're optimizing maybe for the color of the button, you know, you're, you're going down a kind of a narrow path that's going to you know, be narrower and narrower. Maybe you should compare that to also a whole new design of the webpage, you know, with the button elsewhere, with no giving button, but a chat, you know, a chat window that pops up on you. It's so you have to like think differently. Um, one of the things, that we found was that we were really great at providing a donor experience that's frankly excellent to our high level donors, but we're very bad at providing a donor experience that's satisfying to our lower level donors. 
it's very transactional, it's very arm's length. Um, there's just not a lot of human contact. Fortunately, there is the technology and especially during the pandemic, we've all discovered that we are able to bring people together in a much more effective way, scalable way. We don't all have to be in the same room, we can do it on Zoom. Um, and community is, is a big part of that. Um, people just want meaning, they want to be seen, they want to feel valued. Um, and it's hard to do that if you're just sending them letters. Some really interesting points there. And that is something that we've talked a lot about on the direct mail side is that there's such an emphasis towards um, modeling and optimization that um, it, after a certain point, you're focusing in on the same donors. We're all looking for the same donors who are um, are reliable givers and have the most lifetime values. And that's all really important. But how do you find new donors who are outside of the fray? And why aren't those people giving? And um, what's interesting is that in talking to you, um, you actually have a really scientific approach for building community and knowing if you have a community with your donors. So uh, can you walk us through some of those identifiers that we had talked about offline? And um, because it seems like community is a big buzzword in fundraising now, but um, everyone wants it, but they don't know how to get it. And they don't really know how to identify if they have a community, but uh, you, you have a, an approach for kind of figuring that out and uh, something yeah. programmatic that fundraisers can build towards. Thank you, Dan. And I, I totally agree with you. Um, I kind of have a fundamental issue with just buzzwords and we repeat so many of them just like meetings, right? It's community, it's engagement. Um, what does that even mean? And is it the right type of engagement? So I, I think about those things a lot, you're right. Um, when we had this session and we came on the concept of deep community, I started to think, well, what exactly is that? And um, after reading a couple of books and, and, and some papers, uh, I came upon four characteristics that are um, the, you know, the kind of the descriptors of, a best, of the best communities that you can have. So they're purposeful, they're participatory, they're recurring, and they identify leaders. Um, so, you know, if they're purposeful, that means that you're getting together, you may get together with your friends, um, weekly or even nonprofits sometimes put together bashes and put together um, other types of events or get togethers, but they're not really purposeful. So that's not clear. And um, you just have to repeat the purpose much, much, much more than you think is necessary. We sometimes just forget about that and we go straight into well, what needs to get done and we need to call the caterer and uh, you know, send the invites, all of that. But just having that, that purpose at, at the top of your mind is so important and especially for the volunteers. And then it's participatory. People don't want to sit down and be talked to for hours. Um, when like uh, some uh, schools do or nonprofits do lectures and events where it's really um, just sitting down and having a download of somebody, um, of, you know, all the information that they want to throw at you, um, that, that just is not as good as a community as it could be. Um, it's recurring. So that's a really important part because uh, the fact that something is recurring that builds trust, people know they can count on this community that's going to be there for them, even if they like miss a meeting, etc. Um, and it kind of builds a habit, which is something you, you need. And then it identifies leaders, um, especially in nonprofits, but any type of community, the person who's hosting or starting it out just can't do everything on their own. Um, so they need to ask who can help, see who lifts their hand, and 
support those people. Um, you know, and in, in our, in the fundraising world, you're going to ask them for gifts and that's, you know, that's most likely where um, your, your best growth is going to come from. So, so it's, yeah. it, it, it sounds like um, it, community engagement can really be anything that builds a two-way dialogue and makes your donors feel more included in the organization, as well as uh, helping them uh, make connections with like-minded people who have similar interests. I think that's extremely valuable. And um, this can be done any number of ways. Sometimes I think we overthink this stuff, right? But we, we got really good at this kind of thing during the pandemic out of necessity. Mm-hmm. And you're totally right. Some people, when you talk to them about this type of community, they say, well, I don't want donors, you know, we don't want, we don't need donors to be in, in, in our, you know, in our business because they don't know and they're going to start giving us advice. Um, there's that misconception that you actually have to have activities or involve them in activities that are maybe your core mission um, or program delivery or something. You know, I, I think we need to think of this in terms of this is a mechanism to build trust and you can build trust with people getting together to cook dinner, you know, or to put together an event. Um, it's almost like, you know, the event is not so much the goal. The goal is the process. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of a nuance there. You're, you're totally right. Right. So if it's, if it's in person, it, it could be, um, you know, it could be getting donors together to have a potluck dinner. It could be Zoom calls. It could be uh, audio chats um, on, on something like, like Spotify or, or Twitter spaces or, or, or Clubhouse. It, it could really be all of the above. It's anything that um, builds connections between your donors and um, I, the recurring aspect is also important because sometimes an organization, I've heard stories where you'll try something like this once and not a lot of people will show up and you kind of give up on it, but it really has to be, I, I guess the parallel to me is, is um, like with content online, you can't do it once. It has to be an ongoing thing. You have to build a relationship with reciprocal trust. So it really has to be something that um, you commit to, to test out. And you have to have a programmatic approach. You must have, have to have a community engagement strategy, as I see it, for what are ways that we could get our donors, uh, better connect our donors to each other and to the organization and really having a plan in the same way you would for uh, a fundraising campaign strategy. Absolutely. And keeping the purpose top of mind. I mean, I have this, uh, our team, we have a document with our team culture. Um, and we, we talk about uh, lead with the purpose. So every, every meeting, every internal, external, um, just start there. Um, and everything else kind of falls naturally from there. It is just much easier. And you said, you mentioned content. One, another of the sessions we had uh, was from a university professor um, who had studied how um, nonprofits should communicate. And especially he's kind of a specialist in, in social media and uh, more modern communications. Um, he said, Communities are fed with content. So that, that's kind of stuck with me. Um, that's how you keep it thriving and living. Um, and it can be content that one person generates or the organization generates, but ideally over time, that's also something it's kind of self-generating, right? Um, you know, at work, we, um, we set up a, a Google group, a listserv. Remember those in the past? Um, so we set one of, which one of those for each of our classes. Um, that have graduated. 
it's amazing what happens in there. And you see a very clear correlation between giving of each class and the activity that's happening in their listserv. Um, it's kind of beautiful in a way. And, and I actually think that this is a golden opportunity for um, local or uh, community-based organizations because you know, being a part of a community is, is integral to their existence to begin with. And, and it's much easier, I think, for them to wrap their heads around the idea of having a local event, um, regardless of what it is, regardless of what the event is, is built around. Um, but if you're an organization that's a small shop, which many are, um, you know, there's, there, there's basic steps that organizations can start to try to build this relationship with their donors. I think one of the easiest ones, and, and, and obviously it's something that's grown off, uh, it's exploded in interest with any number of, of categories is Facebook groups. And I don't see a lot of nonprofits taking advantage of this. Um, most often, I think it's a bandwidth issue. You know, nobody wants to manage another social page. Um, but it's also a control issue because if you have a group, that means members of that group can share content. But to me, what kind of message, or, or think of it another way, think of the message you are sending to your donors if you give them special access to a group, if whether it's monthly donors or a special category of donors that you're going to give access to your Facebook group that's saying, we trust you to share content and we're going to have that deeper level of engagement with you. To, to me, that that is the lowest bar of community engagement. And I just don't see a lot of nonprofits taking advantage of something that Facebook honestly has gone all in on. They're really pushing the group concept because of how it's connecting people across all these different categories of interest. That's, you're absolutely right. We've set up Facebook groups for some of our volunteer groups um, and they're working. And then, you know, surprisingly, so how, how do you measure what I'm, what I'm about to share in terms of ROI, but surprisingly, the chairs of these groups that were also our moderators of our Facebook group are making multi-year pledges and are really stepping up their commitment. You know, so it, it you, it's hard to measure this. I think a little bit of the problem is what you said, um, the, the control issue. Um, and maybe everything goes well until you start, like you have a problem or somebody that's sharing things that you, that are not in alignment with your messaging. Um, and that's where I see lots of nonprofits just shut down. You, um, whereas nowadays you can't that you know you just can't you, you can't avoid that. You know you're going to have people that are belligerent and sometimes negative saying things about you. And if you ignore them, they're just going to say them elsewhere. You know, or if you like delete their comments, they're just going to go to another platform to do it. So um, being having a strategy for that too is is, is important. Yeah, some of the uh, people who I know who own very successful companies, um, they have a strategy of responding to every customer comment on their social pages, good, bad, or otherwise. If it's good, you're sending a message, hey, we recognize you, we appreciate it, you're part of the community. If it's if it's bad, you're saying, hey, we're not pretending this doesn't exist. And um, more often than not, those, those complaints can be um, remediated just by having that communication. So it's a really powerful message to send to donors, but also to would-be donors, uh, the lurkers that we talked about, people who go on your Facebook page. You know, if you go to a company page and you see that they're responding to customer comments and recognizing them, um, 
it just sends such a powerful message. And, and I think that's something that people really notice from the outside. They say, hey, this is an organization which really cares about their donors. And, and that's another litmus test that I um, will sometimes uh, ask fundraisers um, is how many of your comments, what, what percentage of your comments do you respond to? Do you recognize? And what kind of message does that send if, if you don't do this? So there are yeah. some very basic things that we can do as fundraisers um, even before we start getting into a more sophisticated strategy, which is important as well. Um, impact is, is, is the obvious question, is how do you track if this works? And I look at it the same way as we talked about content. Content is hard to track too in the beginning too. You have to make a commitment to it and you make a commitment over the course of six months, a year. And over time, if you make commitment to it, then you can start looking, well, how much more valuable are donors who engage with this content? And more often than not, they are more valuable, more loyal. And I think that's the same thing. And, and I would encourage fundraisers to not get caught up in the attribution aspect, but totally. we're fundraisers. Um, and and this, is, this is philosophy, which I've been trying to put out there on LinkedIn as well, is test your time. Just make a commitment to say, we're going to do this. Uh, there's case studies out there that you're providing that say this is something that can improve your retention, improve your relationship with your donors, and test it for six months, a year, and see what the impact is. If it doesn't work, maybe it's not right for your organization. But um, if you look at it that way and say, well, what can I put to the side and instead focus on community engagement and test it? That's how I think we find out about the impact of these things. But it, it's not the type of thing that you're going to be able to measure after 30 days or 60 days. Um, do you have those conversations with members in the group? And how do you address those types of concerns about measurement? Yes, um, we do. And sometimes I, I have conversations with folks that um, maybe have been advised by a campaign consultant, you know, and say, well, in this campaign, we're measuring engagement. Um, you know, but I still find that this is done in a, in a very superficial manner. It's like, well, you know, did they open five emails and come to one event? Um, hence the concept of deep community. And I'm going to bring up something that I saw you post about a while ago when you were recommending that nonprofit leaders do more video and have maybe like a weekly update. You know, another of the trends that has been um, evolving slowly is kind of a, like a slow motion train wreck over the last few decades is that the trust that the public has in nonprofits has been on the decline. Last year, for the first time, according to the um, Edelman Trust Barometer, um, trust in businesses was higher than trust in nonprofits. So they, you know, and, and you kind of see this in the messaging um, from Goldman Sachs and Gap around social justice issues and all types of issues that impact their employees that are published on social media, which as you said, is you know, important not only because of your audience, but also because people see how you respond to things, you know? Um, so, and then, so building trust is so important that um, it impacts everything. Again, how do you measure that, right? So um, I, I don't have the answer to that. Um, I, I think you kind of have to believe in it. I see it every day. So like, just the donor participation project, the, the amount of connections and goodwill and really intelligent people that um, are contributing to the conversations. Um, I have to say, I even had a, a gift made in my honor at my organization because of the donor participation project. So um, it's working. 
Can I add a number to it? You know, um, probably not. It's working, and we're at a point. We're at a point now where um, you have organizations such as yours who are actually putting these things into motion. So I think right now it's it's not. You don't have to blindly believe in it. You can just look at the case studies, and then you have to have the courage to make the commitment on your end as well, because um, organizations like yours have taken the bold step uh, to do these things and to build community engagement. Um, but to a certain extent, I agree, you kind of have to buy into it and test it over a period of time and then measure over time, how has this changed our fund, our fundraising program? How has it changed um, retention and engagement? And are we finding new means of donors? Because, um, you know, this is a really hard thing to quantify, but I'm curious to get your take on it. You mentioned um, earlier about declining levels of um, engagement with religious organizations. And, and I, I think that directly um, parallels with the decline of, of religiosity in the, in the United States. But there are all kinds of membership organizations, uh, legacy membership organizations, which are suffering from declines as well, whether you look at labor unions, things like VFW halls. Um, we don't have a lot of sources of community anymore in this country. And, and it's an interesting situation because community engagement is declining, but I see that people are hungrier for it than ever. And this especially took off during the pandemic, but even before then, if you look at a company like Facebook, which is really doubling down on groups as being the major selling point of the platform and these online communities that are popping up for all kinds of things, whether it's Crazy. geekdom or, or business or any micro issue interest that you have, there's a community for it online. So it tells me we want community. And um, I do believe that nonprofits who give people an, an outlet to build community, make connections, will be rewarded for it financially. But um, I, I just... I, th I think that the nonprofit sector has a role to play in helping to rebuild community in general on a human level, and it will benefit them financially, but I think they have a role to play in, in addressing that shortcoming. I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about that, both the decline in community and, and the role that the sector may have to play in, in helping address that. It's a really interesting topic, Dan. Thanks for bringing it up. I think that the last maybe three decades since the 90s, um, the amount of information available has exploded. Or, you know, and it used to be that you got your information from your union, from your newspaper, from your church, and from your university. You know? And those were the gatekeepers of what was right and what was wrong. That is no longer the case. Now, your sources of information are your neighbors, your friends, your groups. Um, aligned across all types of uh, variables that you might identify yourself with. Um, and so that has kind of broken down that intrinsic advantage that nonprofits had. You know, they had a place in the community. And you see that again on social media. Um, if, uh, you know, the, just the, the, the comments and, and the vitriol against some of, 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 of the posts that, you know, universities post. And, and things like that. And the, the, my humble point of view is that the reality is that that's not going away. That's just a new world that we're in. And the prize, let's say, is going to be for those who are able to build communities. 
you know, that's kind of, you, you just kind of mentioned that the need is out there. Um, what we had has stopped working and you see that, you know, the decline in the newspaper industry too, right? Um, what we had has stopped working. This needs to be either rebuilt or we are going to have a lot of chaos. You know, I just, um, so, you know, in a way it's like donor participation. Are you doing it because it's good for you financially or are you also doing it because you think it's the right thing to do? It's more democratic, it's more inclusive. Um, if you keep optimizing, going back to your first question, if you keep optimizing on the same old white men, totally exaggerating, right? Um, but you're gonna end up with more old white men or less and less as you know, that, um, you know, that, that group stops existing. So, um, um, no, you're, uh, you, you have a, a great point there that if you keep modeling your approach off of what's working and who's giving, um, if we're talking about diversity and inclusion, that's not going to diversify uh, the membership in our organizations if we're focusing on the same same types of people. I know, granted, you know, people are loyal donors. Yes, we should focus on building relationships with them as well, but we have to try other things to reach people who are outside of the fray. Um, you, you, you had a very fascinating quote, uh, which I think you referenced from a colleague, that donors are, are lurkers, that in and around organizations, there are people who haven't give, but are either just looking, observing, or maybe they're following the organization on, on social media. Um, can you speak a little bit to that concept and, and how do we bridge the gap between these lurkers and getting them to be um, more invested in organizations to the point that they're willing to become donors? So this is how fundraising is like performing. Everything you're doing is not only being seen by the recipient, but by everybody else on social media, your responses, how you respond, how you engage with people. That's, you know, is it authentic? Is it obviously a canned response? Are you just not responding? So all of that reflects on a big majority of people who are just looking and they may never interact. And then you may know what the percentage is on social media platforms of how many people actually post versus read versus, you know, engage. It's like 90, it's kind of like in fundraising, you know, it's, it's somewhere 70, 30, 70, 20, 10 or something. Um, so um, it's the same thing with honor rolls and you're in the kind of in the publishing world. Um, and there was some advice years ago that honor rolls were terrible and that they're a thing of the past and they only bring problems and that people don't appreciate them anymore. Well, the thing is you're doing it to recognize people. You're also doing it to show everybody else um, how many people, you know, are supporting you? What is Facebook but an infinite collection of honor rolls? You know, who liked me? A list of people. Who commented? A list of people. It just goes on and on. So it's how we're wired. Um, and so it's that aspect of people are looking at you even if you don't hear from them. And then it, that is impacting their judgments and their conversations with their friends that they're having about your organization. People are looking and they're they're talking to others. And if you think about any movie or TV show that you've ever been into, um, I mean, my favorite example would be a movie like Office Space that was not a big, uh, it was not a big box office hit, but it became a cult phenomenon just through word of mouth. Um, if people are talking about you in a positive light 
and people are observing enthusiasm from the outside, that is something that is going to be contagious. I, I, I think that community, especially these days, is contagious and nonprofits have the advantage of that you're not passing out flyers on a corner. You're starting with a group of donors who have a mutual passion, a mutual interest, whether that's uh, saving animals or helping veterans or feeding the homeless, what whatever it is, you have a group of people who are bonded by a, a mutual passion. And, and I think you have a running start almost to bring people together. But let's talk about scalability, because I think that we've talked about a lot of interesting ideas here. We've given um, some really solid concepts that fundraisers can test to try to build community with their donors. Um, as I mentioned, this is a golden opportunity for smaller or local-based nonprofits, but larger organizations or national organizations um, might not think that it's scalable to do this on a community level. Um, one solution that's been out there for a long time in the political world is the idea of community-based advocates or captains or, or sentinels, whatever you, you call them, people that are in charge of organizing on individual community levels. Um, how do you feel about the idea of using either donors or beneficiaries or, or activists um, who aren't, um, who are external to the organization um, as a way of, of mobilizing and, and bringing people together around your organization on a, on a very local community level? You have to do it. There are organizations out there that are uh, doing it incredibly, incredibly well. We have members in the donor participation project from 4-H Council and other kind of national organizations that are doing a lot of this work. I would invite everybody to just go on Google um, and search for a video by Laura Nestler, who's the head of community at Duolingo for a while. Now she's at Reddit. They had they you think Duolingo is an app to learn languages, and you think, well, you know, they're all nerds, they they, they won't do anything in person. Well, they started doing events and they started out with a few a week, they and then they scaled that and they're. I don't know what the stat is, but it's like they're doing 800 events a week in 500 cities. It's pretty crazy. Um, I, I think nonprofits can, you know, respectfully do a whole lot more, but it takes structure. A lot of what I see is that we think of things in terms of one-offs or there's so much staff turnover that we never really pass that. Well, it's an experiment stage. And even if it worked, how do we um, turn it into kind of like a package that we can give our volunteers and have them run with? And then how do we commit to that over you know, a little bit of time? So it's possible, you just need to think of things in a little bit more of a disciplined way. You know, Everything can't be custom. And in some ways, I, I find that to be um, just so authentic if you go to an event and the ambassador there or the person who's in charge of it is a donor. They're not necessarily someone from the organization. So it kind of removes that aspect of, oh, they just want us to give money. It feels oh. a little more organic and, and real. And, and I could see in, in some ways uh, that maybe even being better than having people inside your organization who are um, overseeing the stuff on the ground. Um, what kind of training do your members do for um, uh, for donors or for people who want to um, be involved as community advocates? So during the pandemic, we started organizing happy hours. Not Well, we weren't organizing them. We started 
training our volunteers or explaining to them how they could do their own happy hours. And we're, I'm in a university, so we work uh, at the class level a lot. Um, and it's not as difficult as you would think. You know, you give them the outline of what a happy hour looks like. Um, and this wasn't, didn't involve drinking. It was a happy hour. It was kind of just like a class get together. But you explain best practices. These things work best when we have a presenter or some type of activity that's the focus of the night. Um, we'll handle the invites for you. Um, you, you know, and just kind of delineate the responsibilities. You have the uh, kind of a skeleton agenda. You do the Zoom for them and they're off to the races. And some of them are doing one, one a month, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and it's just huge. They're bringing in people who would never have reconnected with the organization um, just because it's on Zoom, et cetera. So, you know, that's what we're doing. And we're chatting with Luis Diaz, who's host of the Donor Participation Project. Um, Luis, as we prepare to wrap things up here, um, one of the things that really excites me as a fundraiser are the things that are pre-case study. Maybe there's no white paper published. Maybe there's no formal case study that's published, but ideas that you can kind of see into the future that are going to be big and impactful in fundraising. Is there anything... Um, that you're talking about within the group that you really think is um, is going to be a big trend in fundraising um, in, in the near or, or maybe not so near future? Well, I think there are two main trends. You know, are they going to become trends? We're certainly going to try. But there are two, two areas that I believe every nonprofit should look, like, look at. One is monthly giving. So just the characteristics of subscribe, you know, subs uh, um, subscription like uh, giving. Uh, so monthly, indefinitely recurring gifts. Their character, their financial characteristics are just so much better than one-off gifts. Um, and it doesn't mean you're going to lose those major gifts. If anything, you're going to have more loyal donors to ask major gifts of. So that's one. And but that paired with refocusing a lot of that solicitation effort into stewardship and stewardship understood not just as uh, well thank you and thank you so much and thank you thank you thank you but more as that it's it's a community building thing you know so uh you're you made a gift and now we're going to keep in touch with you regularly we're going to have purposeful events and activities for you to engage with you, you know all those the, all that ppri um we, we covered earlier um you know i think those two things are kind of the secret sauce um, to enlarging the donor base. Um, has this been proven? I have applied parts of this at, in my position currently at Muhlenberg College. We went from 24 monthly donors to 588 last year. Um, and we're still keeping that focus that we're a monthly giving first organization at the annual fund level. Um, others, other colleges have said we were bold and crazy and et cetera. So, so far it's working and it hasn't disincentivized one-off gifts. So believe me, if people want to give you money, they absolutely will. Um, we're, we're not so powerful as fundraisers. So um, that, that's my take. What, what do you think then? Uh, no, I think the things that you're talking about, um, I, I agree. I mean, certainly agree on monthly giving um, and community and, they both share a, a similar thread that there are things that you really do have to commit to. 
um, if you want to make work. It's not a short-term fix. Uh, there are things you really have to buy into and make sure that you have the time and the resources to, to fully commit to if you want to see if it's something that's going to be viable for you. No fun, you know, no fundraising trend is universal. Maybe some of this stuff is not going to apply to every organization, but I think most will if they make um, the right commitment and really test their time to see if it's something that's going to um, improve their relationship with their donors and uh, increase uh, retention and and ultimately revenue. And um, as uh, for a closing take here, um, you have such a unique perspective because you're connected to so many dynamic fundraisers who are um, who are on the the ground level actually doing the hard work of of uh, communicating with donors and and testing and figuring out how to improve their programs so um, I'm curious for your take um, and and this could be th- something we've already talked about or something different but what do you feel is the top issue in fundraising today that's so interesting. I'm going to tie it back to that loss in trust in nonprofits, in the government, in you know, in newspapers. Um, I think that is the defining issue, um, and I think that building trust is the responsibility of everybody. But it would sure help if your CEO or your president was on LinkedIn Live every week, giving people an update. So that, you know, so people could develop that trust in the organization. Um, that would help with everything, really retention, fundraising, other programs, other program incomes that you have. So, um, that, you know, that's my hot take. That's, no, that's great uh, advice for, for any fundraiser. And um, you you certainly can't control external factors, but you can control how your donors, how your supporters, how your lurkers feel about your individual organization, and you know certainly giving them more access to uh, high-ranking figures in the organization, making them feel more incorporated through uh, community engagement. I mean, these are certainly steps that any organization can take to increase the the trust. But I agree, uh, trust is is paramount, and uh, again. I see a huge opportunity for small and mid-sized organizations as we talk about declining trust in, in institutions and larger organizations. Um, the, the competitive advantage that I see for uh, smaller nonprofits or, or smaller schools is that you can provide the personal attention and access that is going to be much larger for a, a, um, a national organization to do. And you probably don't have to jump through as much uh, or cut through as much red tape to make these things happen. You don't have to have committee meetings. You can start changing your philosophy tomorrow. So some wonderful advice there. And if listeners would like to get to know more about you, Lewis, or your work with the Donor Participation Project, um, what's the best way for them to do that? And we'll drop your information in the show notes. Thanks so much, Dan. Look for me on LinkedIn. Also look for Dan on LinkedIn. He, he, he shares lots of really interesting stuff. And just Google Donor Participation Project. It's, it's a pretty simple landing page. Um, and you can see our, our upcoming events. And if you'd like one, just sign up. That's great. We'll link to everything in the show note. We really appreciate the plug. And um, I, I really appreciate and want to thank you, Lewis, for the great work that you're doing. Um, I, I'm sure that your members have benefited from um, your 
your research and and the programming that you're putting on. But uh, I think the types of things you're talking about are going to help a lot of fundraisers who check in because you really are kind of focusing on some cutting edge issues and helping uh, helping organizations um, get ahead of the white papers and the case studies and really just talking about some things conceptually that can change the dynamic of uh, their relationship with their donors. So I appreciate all the good work that you're doing and uh, appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Dan. I learn so much every time I speak with you. Hope you have a great one. Thanks a lot. You too.